Would you please turn in your Bible to 1 Peter chapter 1, 1 Peter chapter 1. We're going to read verses 1 through 9, verses 1 through 9, looking specifically at verses 3 through 5. These are words that many of you know well, but let them be good news to you again this morning as Peter rejoices in what God has accomplished in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. First Peter chapter 1, and I'll begin reading at verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with His blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him. And rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Let's pray for God's blessing this morning. Lord, as we come to your word, we need to have ears to hear, and your spirit alone can give us that. So we ask that you would teach us what we do not know. Lord, drive out our unbelief and our fear. I pray, Lord God, that you would use these words to inspire us to this inexpressible joy, full of hope and glory, because of what Christ has accomplished. We pray it in his name. Amen. The title of my message is Unshakable Hope and Uncertain Times, and uh, these are certainly uncertain times, Uh, particularly if, uh, if you are a Christian and you're awake, you're watching what's going on in the world. Uh, You're seeing uh, there's wars and rumors of wars. There's um, Russia is becoming ever more aggressive, and and there seems war seems likely somewhere uh, in that region. Uh, You're seeing uh, um, radical terrorist movements like uh, ISIS and uh, Boko Haram, uh, which are increasing in power and increasing their attacks. Just uh, recently, again, an an attack by a new group that I hadn't heard of on a university in Kenya and uh, asking those who were Christians, uh, if they were asking the students if they were Christian, those who were Christians uh, were killed on the spot. We're seeing increasingly opposition to um, the church and to religious liberty in our country. I just heard that the New York Times, I believe this weekend, had an op-ed arguing that uh, Christians, um, that there should be no such thing as Christian liberty, uh, that uh, those who oppose the the agenda of society, particularly in terms of of homosexuality, uh, should not be allowed to have that view, should be forced 
uh, to abandon their religious convictions uh, and um, that the, the liberty that the state should be seeking is to free Christians from their bondage to the Bible. Uh, and the state would enforce then that liberty and maybe some jail time would help you see things a little more clearly. And so that's where the trajectory is going. That's the world that we live in uh, today. These are uncertain times. Well, Peter is writing in exactly such a context. Nobody likes Christians. The Jews despise believers because they're the follower of this new sect, and they're teaching that the Messiah has come, and that this man Jesus from Nazareth, who was proven to be blasphemous because of the things that he said, that these Christians are proclaiming that he is God's Messiah, that this is the one that's been promised in the Old Testament, and it is offensive and repulsive. Uh, these Christians are saying that even Gentiles now can be uh, part of the kingdom of God, that Gentiles are the true Israel. And so the Jews are out to destroy the church. The Romans scorn Christians. Christians embrace weakness. Christians embrace humility. And what's most offensive is that Christians refuse to accept the plethora of gods that were accepted in the Roman society. So nobody likes Christians. And Peter is writing as not just a Christian, he's writing as the, he's the head guy, he's the known leader of the church, particularly in Jerusalem. He's been promised by Jesus himself that he's going to die a martyr's death. And yet, notice how he writes. He's writing as a very happy man. As soon as he completes his greeting, he just breaks into song. The words come exploding from a happy heart and a feverish pen. Blessed or praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's a song that explodes from Peter's heart. This is as happy a verse as you'll find anywhere in the Bible. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And you can see Peter putting the pen down and just doing a little dance around the desk. This is so incredible. It's such wonderful, great news. He's a happy man. This one verse just oozes confidence and, and, uh, and joy and peace and, and hope. Peter is ecstatic about what God has done in Christ. Even in the midst of a very difficult world, in an oppressive world, Peter's full of, of joy. And, and he trusts that they are too, that they're also rejoicing with them even in the midst of their trials. <clears throat> Alistair begged a uh, recounts the story of a woman. A woman told this to him. Uh, she had a dear friend, uh, a, a man who was elderly, a godly man. He was in the hospital being treated for brain cancer. And the treatments were causing him a great deal of, of uh, suffering and pain. And yet this man expressed a hope and joy and confidence regarding his future that was remarkable. And the, the attending staff noticed it. And in fact, one day this woman was visiting her dying friend, and she noticed that a, a nurse had written a note on his medical chart. This was something that the nurse thought the doctor should pay attention to. And this is what the note said. Uh, Mr. X, I don't know his name, Mr. X is inappropriately joyful. 
Mr. X is inappropriately joyful. Isn't, isn't that wonderful? made no sense to her that here's this man who she knows is dying. He knows he's dying. She knows the suffering he's experiencing. She knows that he does not have a future, and yet he refuses to acknowledge that fact. He's just joyful. Isn't it a beautiful day today? Isn't it wonderful how good the Lord is? inappropriately joyful. And so she puts it on the chart. Something's wrong with Mr. X. With, with, with Mr. X. Doctor, you need to take a look. Do you realize that this is what the world should be saying about the church, about every believer? That should be the world's judgment as they, as they notice our lives and examine us, particularly in times of suffering. They, they should shake their heads in bewilderment. These people are nutcases. They're inappropriately joyful. Even when they suffer, they, they smile and they have hope. They have confidence and joy. Even in their tears, they have joy. You need to examine these people. What's wrong with them? And Peter says we need to be ready with an answer. If you remember in, in chapter 3, verse 5, he says, Always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Why do you Christians refuse to face reality? Why do you, why do you uh, insist on joy and hope and peace in the midst of a world that causes everyone else despair? Well, he says, be ready. Be ready with your reason. And so our calling is to live with this inappropriate, conspicuous joy and peace and hope. In the midst of a troubling world, that's what Christians are called to. And the question is, how is that possible? And Peter here shows us how it's possible. It's possible as we have in front of our, our mind and our eyes established in our heart the reality of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Just again to remember the context, Peter and his readers are in a di living in difficult times. Peter calls them elect exiles. Isn't that a great title for Christians? That's exactly what we are. Elect exiles. These are scattered people. They've been scattered throughout the Gentile world. At one point in time, they had a home. They had family clans that they participated in. They had jobs. They had a life in, in Jerusalem or, or thereabouts, somewhere in Israel. And then in Acts 8, verse 1, we read there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. They had lost their former life. They were expelled from the Jewish community. They didn't have jobs. They didn't have houses. Didn't have homes as they once did. They're elect exiles, which is just a wonderful way of portraying the, 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 the true things about the church. In the one hand, you see, we're elect, and Paul talks about that here, according to the foreknowledge of God, that, that Christians have roots in eternity. Before the foundation of the world, God knew you. He knew your name. He knew the number of your days. And before the foundation of the world, God gave you to Jesus Christ to be an heir of everlasting life and a citizen of the kingdom of God. You are elect. That's the glory of God's election. But on the other hand, so spiritually speaking, you could not be more fixed, more grounded. You're grounded in eternity, in the eternity of God's love and grace. But in this world, you're in exile. 
You don't fit. In some profound way, you don't belong. The world doesn't get you. And we're not, in a sense, where we're supposed to be. We're not, we're not in our native land. That's what an exile is. An exile is, is banished from their native land. Well, we're not banished from our native land. We're just waiting for it. Because of being born again, our native land is not this world, but the world that's to come. And so Peter's just speaking truth here. Christians, you're living in a persecuting world. You're living as exiles in this world. Don't be surprised when the world doesn't get you. Don't be surprised when the world doesn't like you. It's shocking to me how quickly the culture is embracing um, ideas that 20 years ago would just would have been unthinkable and, and how easily it's, it, it's, it, it's coming to our culture that religious liberty is something we need to get rid of and that uh, Christians who hold their positions are something that we need to just be done with. But it's not surprising. The Christians in Peter's day weren't welcomed. They weren't accepted. They were opposed. And yet, Peter says... <laughs> Believers can have this inappropriate joy in the midst of this world. Well, how are we going to do that? Let's look at the text. We have to be convinced of what God has given us. We've got to know what God guarantees us and be assured that God guards us. And so those are my three points. What God has given, what God guarantees, and what God guards. What God has given, verse 3, according to his great mercy... He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. You could preach, you could preach a series, uh, oh man, you could preach every Sunday just on that verse. Every word is packed with significance. According to his great mercy, that word according to, I love that word, because it, it's different than just saying because of his great mercy. When, when David pleads God's grace in Psalm 51, he doesn't say, Lord, because you're merciful, be merciful to me. He says, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. You see, if, if the, the difference is that if a man, say a man has a billion dollars and he offers you a gift because he has a billion dollars or out of his billion dollars, he might give you 25 bucks. Maybe a hundred, if he's being generous. But if he gives you according to his billion dollars, he's going to be much more likely to give you a gift of maybe a million dollars. It's according to, in keeping with, a reflection of. See, David needed according to mercy, not just out of mercy. And the mercy that God gives, that's what Peter is saying, according to his great mercy, his magnificent mercy, God's passion to show kindness to people in need, specifically in, a, in their spiritual need. <clears throat> Out of his great mercy, see, that's the fountain of our, of our hope. That's, our, that's the foundation of our confidence that, that the God who is, is a God of great mercy. And so Matthew Henry says so memorably, above the mountains of our sins, the floods of his mercy rise. All the time. What has God done in his mercy? He's caused us to be born again. We were once dead. Jesus says to Nicodemus, you need to be born again. 
By virtue of being the children of Adam and Eve, we are dead in sin, dead in trespasses. We are heirs of whatever Adam and Eve have coming to them, whatever they passed on to us, and all that is is death. And so Peter delights in the doctrine of regeneration, where the Holy Spirit actually comes and makes you alive takes out that old heart of stone and gives you a heart of flesh, a heart that is able to see the truth about your sin. Do you know how someone is an ad, a child of Adam still or a daughter of Eve still? They can't see the sin. They, they will admit they make mistakes. They'll admit they're not perfect. And yet if you talk to them specifically about their need for Christ to rescue them from the wrath of God, they will oppose you. They're, they're, they're going to be offended by that. I'm not that bad of a guy. I'm not that kind of lady. They don't see it. Meet these sorts of people routinely. Maybe they're religious even. They believe in things. But what they don't believe is that without Jesus Christ paying the price for their redemption, without Jesus Christ bearing the wrath of God for their sin, they'll be utterly lost. They don't believe that until the Holy Spirit comes. And Jesus promises so beautifully in, in, in the Gospel of John that when the Spirit comes, he will convict. It's a wonderful work of the Spirit. He'll convict people of their sin and the reality of judgment and the fact that without Christ there is no hope. The Spirit will do that work, and, he'll, and, and the Spirit then creates a regenerate heart that's able to receive that truth, and then that heart turns to Jesus Christ and says, Lord, Lord, I believe, and I receive everything you've accomplished for me. That's a regenerate heart. God has caused us to be born again. You don't create that regenerate heart. You don't work it up. You don't make it happen. All the work for that regenerate heart is done by God. Now, you need to believe but faith itself is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Do you realize that all the heavy lifting in your, saying, in your salvation, it's all done by God? Even your sanctification is God at work within you, both to will and to do according to his purpose? That's the beauty of being a Christian. God does all the heavy lifting. So Peter is just delighting in what God has caused to happen, this new birth into a living hope. Now, again, put yourself in Peter's shoes. I think this is one of the most fascinating parts of the story. Peter, when he was a disciple of Jesus, he was a confident disciple. He had joy. He, he would even have peace to some degree because he was a good disciple. He was recognized as a leader. He was one of the inner three. And, and he was a bold man. He was probably a little older than the other disciples, certainly older than John. And so Peter exuded confidence. He liked being a disciple of Jesus. But then came that awful moment when Jesus was arrested and, and Peter absolutely fell apart. He, he panicked. And he's asking God to damn him in front of this little girl that's saying, didn't you know Jesus? Didn't I see you with Jesus? And he's saying, may, may, may God in heaven condemn me if I, if I ever knew the man? I, I don't know the man with curses. He's doing exactly what Jesus said he would do and exactly what Peter assured Jesus he would never do. And then when Peter wakes up and realizes what he's done because Jesus walks through the courtyard and, and Jesus looks at him and Peter is absolutely exposed. And, and, and Peter, he's just, 
He's done. What happened to Peter? What happened to all the confidence? What happened to this super disciple? Well, you see, his confidence was, it was ill-founded. It was confidence in himself. It was confidence in his position, his status. It wasn't confidence in grace. He's, Peter was the house that was built on sand, had no foundation. And so when the trials came, the house collapsed. We're going to see, friends, as, as the persecution in this country starts in earnest, we're going to see a lot of houses collapsing. Of people who profess to be disciples finally realizing that they're not that kind of disciple. They're not interested in that sort of Christianity. And many will fall away. Why? Well, because the confidence was not rooted in the work of God. And yet, so that's Peter's story. Here's this, here's this, this top dog in the discipleship, in the disciple group, front of the class, cowering in abject fear, weeping bitterly because of his failure as Jesus is dying on a cross. And yet, it's exactly the same guy six weeks later who is boldly, publicly proclaiming this Jesus as Lord and King to thousands of Jews and any watching Romans, and he has utterly no fear. These are exactly the same people he'd been hiding from just six weeks ago. And now in plain sight of everyone, he is proclaiming, I am a Christian and Jesus is the Christ, a picture of joy and confidence. And the question is, what happened to Peter? Well, the resurrection happened to Peter. In the resurrection, Peter was made new, a completely new man. And the question I want to ask is just, why did the resurrection make that big a difference for him and for everyone? I mean, the resurrection was a fact. It happened, but not everyone in Jerusalem responded to it the way Peter did or the other disciples did. For many people, it was not a life-transforming event. They, they refused to believe it, or if they believe it, they thought maybe some trick had been played. But it didn't transform their life. So why did it transform Peter's life? Why, why should it transform our life? Because we believe it's a fact. I bet I could interview every single one of you, and I would say, do you believe Jesus literally, physically, bodily came out of that grave? And you'd say, I, I do. And yet, do we experience it as a life-transforming reality, something that we could point to as, as the reason that we are the way we are? So how did that happen for Peter? Well, you could say Peter was just overjoyed that his dead friend was alive again. And just by saying it, you know, that doesn't sound right. There has to be something. I'm sure they were delighted that Jesus is alive. And they have him back. That, I'm sure that's part of it. But that can't, be, that can't be the whole of it. So what is it? Why does the resurrection make such a difference for Peter? Because in the resurrection, <clears throat> Peter discovers this great mercy of God. The resurrection is, is the evidence that God was for them. The resurrection is, is the testimony of God's magnificent yes to Christ's atoning work on their behalf. The resurrection was the irrefutable, eternal, unshakable proclamation of God by God of his mercy 
for sinners, and that God has not just washed away their sin, God has conquered death. God has cursed the curse. God is reconciling the world to himself in Christ's death and resurrection. So there, you see, the reason there was so much hope in the resurrection of Jesus is because all the reasons for despair are banished. Now, there's reasons to grieve still. There's reasons to, to, to struggle. But there's no reasons for despair if God has raised Jesus Christ from the death because what causes despair is sin and judgment and death and hell. and They're vanquished. You see... Prior to the resurrection, Peter had many reasons for despair. He experienced despair. How could he have done such an awful thing, such a wicked, inexcusable thing as to deny that he even knew Jesus when he, had, he was the one that said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And he believed it. And now he had publicly spit in the face of Jesus. Who was the guilty? Who brought this upon thee? Alas, my treason, Jesus, hath undone thee. Twas I, Lord Jesus, I it was denied thee. I crucified thee. That's what a sinner knows. I did it. And my sin still today is an offense to God. It's spitting in the face of Christ. That's reason for despair. And that's why the resurrection is so transforming for Peter, you see, because it was the very Jesus he spit on, the very Jesus that he helped nail to the cross. That was the Jesus who came to him. That was the Jesus who forgave him and loved him and restored him. That's why there's hope for us. Because if this Jesus is willing to forgive us, the one that we had despised and denied and rejected and sinned against profoundly, if that Jesus now comes and says, I love you, come and follow me, I forgive you, the kingdom of heaven is yours, you see, then we know that mercy has triumphed. Peter, in the resurrection, hears that wonderful proclamation from God that God is willing to be just and the justifier of the ungodly. Peter can be justified, declared innocent before the throne of God. Peter can be sanctified, made new. Peter will be glorified by the power of God, perfected in the presence of Jesus Christ forever. That is the life-transforming hope of the resurrection. That changed his life. Because now he really knows who Jesus is as he's come to face who he really is and what the gospel really is about. And now Peter's not afraid of anything. He's not afraid of anything. What can they do to him if God be for us? Well, who can be against us? What, what, what could be lost? Nothing. And it, goes, it gets better. Not only what God has given, but what God has guaranteed. So... Guaranteed, uh, we've been born again to a living hope, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. You see, the, the resurrection of Jesus Christ was not just conquering the curse due you for your sin. It didn't simply remove the awful consequences of your crimes. 
It did that. Praise God it did that. But that is not all that it did. It accomplished so much more. The resurrection of Jesus Christ has brought every believer into an eternal inheritance, the inheritance of God. See, if you know anything about inheritances, you know that you don't earn them. They just, you got born into the right family. Good for you. Were you scheming somewhere in time past before you were born and kind of looking over the registry and seeing how people were doing and decided, I think I'm going to take a shot on that family right there? No, you had nothing whatsoever to do with it. You didn't earn it. In fact, the truth is, right, if you, if you would reflect back on your childhood, you realize you did a thousand things to discredit yourself. And yet, this inheritance is given to you through the hard work and generosity of someone else, probably your parents or grandparents. They've made you an heir, and it's rightfully yours. The law says it. If it's in the will, it's yours. It's rightfully, truly yours. And if the amount is significant, you'll find that you'll be making plans uh, uh, regarding the future. Well, right now, things are a little tight, but um, we know there's an inheritance coming. And when that happens, this is what we'll do with it. And will you make plans in the, for the future in, in light of this large inheritance you've coming? Well, one of, the, one of the problems is that Christians have forgotten our inheritance. So often God's children live as if they've never heard of an inheritance. As if this world and this life is, is all that we really have. One writer says, I meet many faithful Christians who in spite of their faith are deeply disappointed in how their lives have turned out. Sometimes it's a matter of how they experience aging, which they take to mean they no longer have a future. Often due to circumstances or wrongful decisions and actions by others, what they had hoped to accomplish in life, they did not accomplish. Much of the distress of these good people comes from a failure to realize that their life lies before them. The life that lies endlessly before us in the kingdom of God. You see, we, we really weren't supposed to make our splash in that sense here. This was not supposed to be your best life. This is preparation. And God wants us to live in this life with our eyes and minds and hearts set on the world that is yet to come, to live with great confidence and eager expectancy for what he has prepared for those who love him, 1 Corinthians 2.9. Because it's there, and it's imperishable, and it's unspoiled, and it's unfading. Imperishable. What do you own right now that's imperishable? Name me one thing you own right now that's imperishable. Your health? That's not imperishable. Your bank account, you know that's not imperishable. Your brand new car, that's not imperishable. Name me one thing. Your family, that's not imperishable. You do not own a single thing that is impervious to breaking down and falling apart. Everything you own is perishable. In fact, we know that's true. That's why great joys and pleasures in this world carry with them their own pain because we know they can't last. They won't last. But this is imperishable. Your inheritance in Christ cannot decay. It is utterly, eternally, absolutely impervious to decline. Everything that you have coming to you in Jesus Christ lasts 
and grows and abounds and flourishes. Every relationship you have in heaven will be like that. Every blessing you have in heaven will be like that. Every beautiful experience you have in heaven will only be surpassed by another greater and more beautiful experience. Imperishable. It's incredible. It's undefiled. The word is a reference to things that are stained by sin. Sin mars and stains and dirties things, even things that were meant to be good. But not this, not this inheritance, not this place where righteousness dwells, not God's holy city. There will be no evil in it. Just read the book of Revelation. No violence, no murderers, no lying, no death, no immorality. Every enjoyment, think of this, Every enjoyment in heaven will be a holy joy. Every motive will be pure. Every word will be beneficial. Every act will be adorned with the beauty of holiness. It's staggering. And it's unfading. One of the things I love about heaven is that it doesn't fade Everything in this world fades. Time just has its effect. Everything gets covered with the dust of time, slowly loses its original beauty and its brilliance. Do you, do you know that when you get to heaven, no one in heaven is going to be saying, oh, you should have been here 500 years ago. It was so great 500 years ago. It doesn't fade. Our inheritance is untouched by death, unstained by sin, and unimpaired by time. And it's guarded. And we'll wrap with that. What's guarded? It is, and you are. It is kept in heaven for you, ready to be revealed at the last time. Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you, but it's, it's, it's ready. They're, they're, you know, sometimes if you've ever, ever been in a play and it's, it's, it's the first night and the, the screen is still closed, but it's, it's time for the show to get started and people are frantically running around behind the curtain trying to get everything in the right place and make sure people have the, the right costumes on and, and you hope that when the curtain goes up, it's not a scene of utter chaos. Well, that is not happening behind the scene. It is ready. Jesus has made it ready. It's ready to be revealed at the last time. All that it's waiting is for the day when God draws the curtain back. It's guarded, it's ready, and you are guarded, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are guarded through faith. For a salvation ready to be revealed. Your salvation is, is ready to be revealed as well. God knows what he's doing. And he guards you. He guards you through faith. He gives the gift of faith. He feeds your faith. That's why we, we come together in Bible studies and prayer and, and in worship and hear sermons because it is faith that is the victory that overcomes the world. Faith is, is how we lay hold of these treasures we have. Faith is where we get the confidence and the joy and the peace. It's by believing what he said. You know one of the greatest battles of your Christian life will, to be, will be to believe this more than you believe this or more than you believe this or more than you believe the experiences you're in. Will this stand and be true? Will I believe this? That's a battle. And yet that's where all the joy is. That's where all the power is, all the peace is. 
God guards his children through faith. And yet, though we have to believe, and faith is the instrument by which God guards us, notice God does the guarding. Peter's not saying you need to guard yourself. He says God guards you. God will complete the work that he's begun. God will make sure that those who he has given faith to, that faith will not fail. God assures that. He will keep you to the end. And friends, that's how we stand with inappropriate joy in a difficult world. The resurrection happened. God in his great mercy has reached into this world and has reached into your life because he loves you. And because he has a passion and a desire to see you experience everlasting life through Jesus Christ, right? He sent not his son to condemn the world, but that through him the world might be saved. That's the beauty and the glory of the resurrection. We can stand and face an opposing and persecuting world even, and we can speak the good news to them. Do you understand what God has done in Jesus Christ? Do you understand that Easter has happened, the resurrection has taken place, that God is willing to be reconciled to you? That's the wonder of the gospel. And one day, all these circumstances and difficulties and trials, all these things disappear. They all pass away because they are all perishable. And one thing will stand. All the truth of what God has accomplished in Christ will be revealed in all of its glory. And friend, my prayer for you is that on that day, you're ready for it. On that day, you've been eagerly anticipating it. And that's what Peter's after. And let me just wrap it up. But that's what he's after. He He wants inexpressible joy now in the hearts of God's children. Because the because of the the irrefutable reality of the resurrection and the promise of what is yet to come. Tonight in our message, we're going to be looking at what is yet to come, just taking a good look at what is heaven going to be, Revelation 21. Friends, that's the inheritance. That's what's promised. Let's believe it, and let's walk in this world with glorious, God-honoring, inappropriate joy. Amen. Father in heaven, thank you for the resurrection. Thank you, Lord, that that stands in history as your amen and yes to Christ's atoning work. And that stands as the absolute proof that no matter how great our sin, we can be forgiven. No matter how great our crimes, we can be restored. We can be made new. We can be made heirs of everlasting life. Father, I pray that the reality of what is yet to come would more and more oppress itself upon our hearts and minds so that the things of this world grow strangely dim. And Father, I pray there be any here this morning who do not yet know Jesus as their salvation, their only hope, their only confidence. Father, may this day be the day where they are brought to new life. Thank you that the gospel is doing that work. The gospel is bringing people to life. Through faith in Jesus Christ, oh God, do it here. And do it in our hearts, those of us who have believed, and yet, Lord, the difficulties have worn us down, made us tired, and just maybe feeling spiritually empty. We need to to see again all that is ours and all that is yet to come. Oh, Father, help us to make those truths, the truths we live in and by. In Jesus' name we pray it. Amen.